Steve, you tell us about you. You've, you've worked here for two and a half years. Tell us what you do. Yeah, just over two and a half years. So at TalkTalk, I'm the IT service level manager. So that's basically monitoring the performance of all of the technology teams, making sure that um, they're performing to within SLA, creating reports, dashboards, etc., that get shared amongst technology. They're reviewed on a, on a weekly basis. And they also kind of go up to exec level. So the exec get visibility of, to, as to how technology is performing. How has that been over, over, over lockdown and remote working? Because is is that job harder when it's when you're remote? Sounds a very complicated thing. Some elements of it are um, are more difficult. So as a team, uh, we're obviously fairly integrated, and it's always good to bounce ideas off people. Obviously, during lockdown, we've been remote working from home, um, so that's been a little bit more difficult. But we've still been able to use Microsoft Teams fairly uh, succinctly to be able to have team chats. We're always exchanging ideas on there, um, so that's worked out really well. Uh, one of the drawbacks. Is um, over in the soapworks. We have a large video wall that uh, part of my role is looking after, and not being able to see what's going on on that video wall has been been quite difficult. So we've come in on occasions and found things that have broken, need resolution. So I tend to come in the office once or twice a week. Certainly now that lockdown is easing, to keep an eye on that, and then to keep up to date with teammates as well. That's really interesting because um, technology and IT, you, you wouldn't say is necessarily very visual for the people that don't know much about it. But what you're saying is you really miss that very large pictorial visual representation of your world. Do you miss that? Yeah, that's it. So, so part of my role is trying to bring that information to life. So kind of all the, uh, the technology side. People tend to think of it as being uh, in terms of servers, in terms of network devices, applications. But actually, if you went and had a conversation with somebody and said, oh, well, this particular piece of the network has been unavailable for 25 minutes, uh, or this application has been down for two hours, well, what does that really mean? So part of my role is kind of bringing that to life. And we find that way that a lot of people tend to uh, understand that is more through kind of picture storytelling. So we on my team and myself, we're thinking of how we can bring that to life, what kind of graphics we can use to make things visually easy to understand so that ideally anybody could uh, have a look at the video wall over in Soapworks and say, oh yeah, uh, we've had this many Microsoft Teams calls going on this week, or we've stopped X number of um, spam phone calls going through to our customers, that, that kind of thing. So it's bringing things to life in a really visual manner, making sure that everything's branded and easily understandable. Well, one of the things I've, I've heard from people who work in tech in this company, and obviously there are a lot, and people that have come on this podcast, they say that tech is a little bit art and a little bit science, a little bit words, a little bit numbers, yeah. a little bit code, a little bit pictures. It's kind of misunderstood, isn't it, tech? You think it's all one thing, whereas actually... It's um, a whole variety the, of things. And, and actually, to be good at it, you have to, you have to see that, all the different sides of it, and the left and the right brain, don't you, really? Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit of everything. So I think part of my role is doing that translation piece and taking stuff from that pure technology aspect and getting it really understandable by people. And that, that's the kind of thing that I like doing, kind of trying to simplify, trying to break things down so that anybody can understand things from a, uh, certainly from a statistics point of view, but also enabling that layman's view, if you like, of, of what is quite a complex technology piece that, uh, as an organization we perform. Now, like many people at Talk Talk, you have a hinterland behind work. It's, you know, you can say maybe it's not even one of the main things you do in life. You fly small planes. 
I do. So that's um, I've been interested in aviation since I was a teenager. Really, I was I was an air cadet as a teenager, kind of from the age of thirteen, and I used to live with my parents quite near Manchester Airport. So I was always always fascinated by the, seeing the aircraft going into the airport landing. Um, and as an air cadet, I got the opportunity to learn to do some flying, um, and I flew a glider at the age of sixteen. So well before I was able to uh, learn to drive, I did my solo flight of flying by myself in a glider with the RAF down in Shropshire. You you were flying planes before you could drink a beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, spent quite a bit of time down there um, uh, one summer, uh, kind of when I was sixteen years old, and I've really kept that love of aviation going. So I did my private pilot's license at an airfield in South Manchester called Woodford. Uh, that was a British aerospace place that's now closed down, and I worked part time at the flying school. And instead of uh, paying me a salary, they gave me an hour's flying lesson every uh, every week. So that allowed me to build up my hours. Where probably at that stage in my life, when I was kind of a student, I wasn't really able to to afford it so that that was good um and then woodford airfield as i mentioned that closed down um and i moved over to barton which is just quite near where i live now the other side of the ship canal uh, just near the trafford center and i've flown a variety of different aircraft over the years ranging from cessnas to pa 28s and i've more recently over the last five or six years flown uh, aircraft that are classed as microlites and a lot of people class microlites as kind of being these things with that look a bit like hang gliders but in actual fact they're just very light aircraft so um, I've flown an aircraft called the Eurostar, which it looks like a very small two-seater aircraft. And very recently, within the last few weeks, I bought myself a share in a aircraft called an Icarus, which again is a two-seat microlite class aircraft, high wing, but actually really high performance. It can take off in very short runways. It can cruise along around about 110 miles an hour. Great to go places at the weekend. It's uh, it's really nice to kind of get up to the Lake District, have a fly around, or kind of down the North Wales coast. So yeah, really love that. Um, in my spare time as well, I help out in the control tower at Barton Airfield. So I've got my license to do air traffic in the control tower. That's something that I've been doing again for a lot of years, um, and really want to stay involved. And recently as well, um, over the last three or four years, I've got back involved in the Air Cadets, kind of where it all started, really. Um, so I'm now a commissioned officer in the uh, RAF Air Cadets, um, and I'm responsible for organising all the flying and gliding opportunities for cadets across the Greater Manchester area. So getting them down to RAF bases, getting them involved in gliding, uh, and kind of giving them the same opportunities that I had when I was a teenager, really. Great. When do you stop being afraid of flying by yourself? How long does it take? <laughs> well, um, I, I don't think I ever remember being afraid of flying. It, it is fairly nerve-wracking, probably the first two or three flights that you do by yourself. Um, but I think you reasonably quickly get over that. Um, I all Well, she still does it now, but my mum, bless her, she's kind of in her 80s and she doesn't get used to the idea that her son could possibly fly an aircraft by himself. And she's always asking me about who's supervising me. And is there an instructor going with you? It's like, no, mum, I'm, I'm, I'm by myself kind of thing. And she goes, oh, do be careful. So, yeah, she's um, uh, she's not used to it. But, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of got to the stage now where it's a little bit like driving a car. You've always got to be a little bit careful, always got to make sure kind of all your checks are done uh, no issues with the aircraft your navigation is spot on but other than that you have that level of confidence that, uh, that you can, uh, can go up there and have a fly around and uh, come back home safely what's it done for your confidence 
in normal life at work, whatever, flying a plane or your skill sets? What, what does it do for you? Yeah, I've often thought about this and I think I'm reasonably good at decision making and I think I can make decisions nice and quickly. And I think that does come from, from aviation. And again, going back to my air cadet days, that really helped instill a lot of confidence. And I think that's kind of delivered through um, into my career and certainly helped by having a private pilot's license. Um, I think you get to be able to get to a stage whereby if there's an awful lot of noise going on, um, a lot of information that you don't need, you learn to process it out very quickly um, and concentrate on the bits that are really matter important at that stage. So definitely helped in that respect. Fantastic. Um, would you encourage other people to do it or is it only for certain personality types? I'd, I'd say that anybody can do it. So I would say in some respects, learning to drive a car is more difficult there's obviously an awful lot more cars on the road than there are aircraft flying around. So there's less things to hit in the air. You have to be able to think in three dimensions rather than uh, just driving a car where you're turning left, right, speeding up and slowing down. Obviously, the aircraft's got the bit about going up and going down. But I think as long as you've got a reasonably good knowledge of geography and you can understand northeast, southwest, then you're not going to go far wrong. And I would go so far as to say anybody could potentially learn to fly. Um, some It's not for some people, but uh, I don't think it's ex- as exclusive as uh, some people make out. There's a whole range of different people involved in aviation, ranging from students, 80-year-olds, chief executives of organisations. I'll see a lot of people in IT. I know a lot of police officers that are pilots. So a whole world of different people involved in the aviation world. Amazing. As well as flying, you, you know, you're, you're a family man. Your daughter has... A condition that that needs some attention, like uh, I guess, is that way of putting it? Yeah, that, that, that's right. So she has something called complex regional pain syndrome, and that's really a, a neurological condition, which is where she suffers from severe pain in her limbs. Um, and that first started at the age of twelve. So um, we were out for a weekend. I think we'd gone down to Cambridge just for just for a weekend, and she suddenly started having kind of pain in her legs, and we didn't really understand that. And it got progressively worse over the, the the kind of next few weeks to a stage where she couldn't put any weight on her on her legs, and we noticed that her legs were twitching when she was asleep. That kind of thing. Um, we spent an awful lot of time, kind of thing. We saw about seventeen doctors before it got diagnosed, and it's a, a condition called complex regional pain syndrome, um, and that's where if she suffers a minor injury to her limbs, a kind of nervous system, a brain kind of really overreacts to that. She went on medication. She had physio for it and um, for a stage was in, in a wheelchair. She also was reliant on crutches for a while. But fortunately, as I say, we got that diagnosis and support off uh, a charity which um, specializes in complex regional pain syndrome. And um, over the course of about five or six months, the, the condition improved and she, she was able to start walking normally again with that support. More recently, um, she's 18 now, but... Uh, just funnily enough, before she started doing her A-levels, she started again with it, but this time in her arm. So we don't know what she'd done, potentially banged her arm, something like that. But she got to a stage whereby she couldn't write, she couldn't really move her arm. She was kind of in really excruciating pain again. We knew it was CRPS, so the diagnosis was obviously much easier that time, knowing that she'd had it previously. Got her on the medication fairly quickly, um, and she started seeing a, a physio and an occupational therapist again. But that kind of meant that during her A levels, she had to have a scribe sat with her. Um, so even though A levels 
were nationally were kind of suspended. Her school was still doing internal tests. So that was quite difficult, creating an additional amount of worry for and, and stress, which doesn't help with that. So, yeah, fortunately, she's getting to a stage now where the pain levels are starting to reduce again. Um, she's due to go to university in October. So we're hoping things will be sorted then for her. But it's something that she just has to be careful about kind of during her life, making sure that she doesn't, she can't play things like netball or hockey because there's a kind of a high risk there that she's going to get knocked and bumped. Uh, but she manages really well. She knows she's got that condition. It's something that she needs to be careful of. It just seems at the minute that it reoccurs every, every few years. So she does really well with it, though. She's in the Air Cadets herself. She gets really involved in, in that and goes away for the weekend. She sounds amazing. It doesn't stop her. Yeah, no, it doesn't. She's in the middle of doing something called the Westminster Award at the moment, which is for cadets across the, the country that have been uh, kind of gone through uh, adverse circumstances and kind of really outstanding. So that kind of has demonstrated her ability to get on stuff despite this disability that she's got. So we're all really proud of her for that. And uh, she's actually due to go down for a week in Cornwall next week, kind of an outward bound thing. And she knows that she can't carry heavy rucksacks around or potentially do abseiling, that kind of thing. But she's certainly going to get fully involved in other activities. So I know she really, uh, she's looking forward to doing some snorkeling off the coast of Cornwall. So yeah, she can still crack on with all that kind of thing. There are some people that have a limitation on what they can do, but somehow their life seems to be richer than others. Maybe your daughter's a bit like that. Quite possibly, yeah. We're all really proud of her anyway. So yeah, uh, she does really well. And she's going to be flying, do you think? So whether she'll be, um, because of a pain condition, whether she can get a medical to do a pilot's license, I don't know. She's enjoyed the flying that she's done with the air cadets. So she's done some gliding. She's done some flying in RAF training aircraft. Uh, but whether she can progress that to a career, that might be quite difficult with this pain condition. Her ambition at the minute is when she goes to university, she's doing a law degree. So she's having a bit of a debate with herself at the minute as to whether she wants to be a barrister or a solicitor. So we'll, uh, we'll see what, what works out there. That's all for today. If you like the podcast, please subscribe in your podcast app. And if you have time, give us a review. If you have a suggestion or question, get in touch on Twitter at TalkTalkGroup. You can follow us there or also on LinkedIn. Thanks a lot for listening.